This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Welcome to another... I shouldn't say it like we've been doing it every week because these are actually pretty rare. Today is a true crime special edition, which means we're bringing you a multi-episode true crime series served up in one episode of our podcast. So it's all of the true crime, half of the time. How's that for a tagline, Eric Shaw Quinn? I... I think it's the same length of time as always. It will take you far longer to watch Murder on Middle Beach, which is what we're discussing today, than it will to listen to this one one hour episode of our podcast. You see that? That's math, Eric Shaw Quinn. Well, it will actually take you four times longer, um, but they're not actually the same experience. So that's like saying it will take you. A hundred and fifty times longer to recover from appendicitis than for me to tell you about having appendicitis. (laughs) That's the point. We live in a culture where people want to act like they've seen a thing or read a thing without actually having to go to the effort of actually watching. This is the cliff notes of true crime. We are the cliff notes of true crime, and um, when we do this. Dear party people, this is a lot more work <laughs> for us because we have to sort of watch it all and boil it down and um, give you our take on things. I, we did this with Sasquatch. But it's never as much work for us as it is for Brandon. Uh, never. It's always more work for Brandon. Always worse for Brandon. Our sound genius, genius excuse me, Brandon Griffith, he is a uh, always laboring to make us sound wonderful and good. Right now, we are still recording remotely because of gremlins in our studio. We hope to be back to normal by our next episode, but no promises. I think Brandon is working on a Lego project. (laughs) Yeah, currently. We can see Brandon on the FaceTime. He is sick of listening to us. He has moved away from his computer. makes all of the Lego that the contestants don't make on that show, Lego Masters. Oh, I'm going to pretend not to know this just to play off where you're going. So, in the background, he is actually in his studio working on those while he is recording this. So, that's the ultimate. Well, actually, we're recording it. He has to edit it together. All right. All right. Get on with your bad self. Just make sure the recording cuts off at the right time. (laughs) All right. That's it. Listen, we don't have time. We have a lot to cover. 
Murder on Middle Beach is currently streaming on HBO Max. That Consider that your warning. Even um, as we speak. As we speak. <laughs> it's streaming it there right streaming. now. Always streaming. Um, you do not have to go and watch it to understand what we're going to talk about. Our job is to serve it up in as much steaming detail as we can so that you can impress your friends at parties without having wasted time on watching. I Although don't want to attack claiming it. that they'll understand what we talk about may be presumptuous on our part. It may be. It may be. It we may believe be. you'll okay. understand us but because we think we're comprehensible, but we do get kind of sidetracked sometimes and end up talking we about do. the strangest goddamn things. That's the point of having a podcast for the most part. Apparently. Okay, so let's let's lay some things down at the outset. Let's give you the frame that this story is going to be told, okay. if you will. This is essentially, if you've seen any of the marketing materials about this, you know that this is about a very attractive, in my opinion, young man trying to find out who killed his mother in, in a... <laughs> Tony, which is well, really we got why that I, in there. That's really, and there's no secret about that. It starts with the murder of his mother. What we're going to try to keep no, track I of for admit you. That, that you thought he was very attractive. He's very attractive. And his picture, and the marketing department at HBO knows he's very attractive, and they have used his face in all of the marketing materials for this. Absolutely. And I don't think you see Shamelessly his mother Shamelessly used his face once. everywhere. So um, he did this over a period of several years. He begins recording these interviews with his family as part of almost a college project. And then he continues upon graduation. He picks it up again. But he was in high school when the crime took place. So correct. even that was belated. So uh, this, we're going to try to keep, that becomes relevant to a certain extent. Because you need to sort of understand the the length of time the case sort of languishes as a sort of motivation for why he is doing what he's doing. So we'll try to keep track of that for you as we talk about it. But no promises because there's a lot to cover here. Um, So I'm just going to dive right in. Episode one is called Mom's Dead. So that does not beat around the bush. It's March 3rd, 2010. A woman named Barbara Hamburger. A woman named Barbara Hamburger. Hamburg, excuse me. Oh, God, I'm going to do that the whole... I'm going to call it... You really are. They're called... The family's name is Hamburg. Hard G. End of word. Okay. Barbara Hamburg is murdered in a waterfront home, in her waterfront home in Madison, Connecticut. Uh, That's an area of town called Middle Beach. So there's no ambiguity around the title of the show here. Uh, The story is broken out for us via local news footage clips. Uh, we also see snippets of interviews with sisters of Barbara's as well as her mother's, which fill in the details for us. The cause of death is blunt force trauma and stabbing. She suffers a terrible head wound. She's stabbed 18 times and her cartoid, cartoid artery excuse me, is severed. Um, on the day her body is discovered, her daughter Allie and her sister Conway have been calling her repeatedly and they can't get in touch with her. So they go to her house and they find Barbara's car in the driveway. Her keys are in the door. The door is locked. So that doesn't make any sense to them. Why would the keys be in it and the door simultaneously locked? At first, they can't find her. They find then a pile of cushions from, I think, porch or lawn furniture that are piled up against the bushes next to the side of the house. Conway, her sister, pulls them back and thinks, Oh, she sees blood and what she thinks is fur, and she thinks, oh, it's just a dead animal. And Barbara covered it up for some reason. Then she pulls back another cushion, and she realizes it's Barbara. We flash forward to 2013. We're three years after the murder, and a young man named Madison Hamburg, Barbara's son, is starting to film footage for a documentary project about her killing. Um, We're going, as I said earlier, to follow this footage all the way up through 2019. This documentary is going to end fairly close to where we are now when we're recording this episode. So there's a lot of time and ground covered. There's even a leap, a tiny leap beyond that right at the very end. Yes, exactly. Because the pandemic is happening by the the epilogue. Um, He starts trying to engage with his father, Jeffrey, about the murder. And we start, this is going to become a trend. We start to hear these phone calls that he's having with his father that he has recorded, which we will come to understand he is recording secretly without his father's knowledge. And he's trying to get his dad to open up about Barbara's murder. And his dad is absolutely and resolutely stonewalling him. They were divorced. Just bizarre. It is the most bizarre thing 
and it becomes who his father apparently is. It's just the strangest thing. At what point, so we we learn right around in here that his parents were divorced at the yes. time of the murder. Yes. Um, we go, he goes to visit his grandmother, Madison does, in Virginia, where she lives. Her name is Barbara Lund. She seems like a lovely woman. Um, she, he also is interviewing Conway Beach. That's the sister who discovered Barbara's body the day of the murder. Um, and then we dive into the history of his parents' marriage. It was a very privileged background. Barbara thought when she landed Jeffrey as her husband, she had married quite well, and she had. He was a multimillionaire. He was the CEO of a company called Southern Electric, which, forgive me, but it felt like this was from a day maybe when the power companies were not regulated quite the way they were now. Like this is, was this like Pac Bell or I didn't know it had a, they didn't say much about what Southern Electric did aside from being an energy company of some sort. Yeah, no but idea. But he made a lot of it money. It was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and then... Jeffrey's career hits a wall. He is accused by his colleagues at the company of engaging in an illegal business deal. He files a defamation suit against them for $3 million, and he wins, but he's clearly out of the company. Um, it's a huge blow to his ego. And in the words of Barbara's relatives, he begins traveling overseas, trying to put these deals together, which are always poorly defined. And Barbara claims in turn that Jeffrey basically abandoned her and left her alone with the kids and was never around the house anymore. So she files for divorce and he responds. And again, all of this is coming from Barbara's relatives who are sitting for interviews with Barbara's son. They claim that Jeff punished her for this by refusing to support her financially or to pay child support. And their, their belief was that he was deliberately trying to impoverish Barbara. Um, I'm sorry, did you raise your hand, sir? Were you no, just sitting I forward saying, in the chair? No, I was saying, and all of the, none of this, the reason Christopher keeps emphasizing that this is, we're learning this from the family, is that the father will not talk about no. any of this. Yeah. And when he, this is a icy, icy cold man. Like his, his shutting down of his own son consists of, yeah, I'm just not going to talk about that with you, Madison. I'm just, I'm not, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. You know, that's as much as I can say. As being deposed by a defense attorney or something. And anybody who disagrees with him is crazy and a liar. Yeah, absolutely. And as we'll see, a drunk, which becomes his other accusation that he makes on a recurrent basis. And we'll find out why. Um, so after sort of setting this scene, we go to March 5th, 2010, which is the um, two days after the day of the murder. And there is an abundant use of, uh, I will call it archival news footage in this special because this was covered extensively on local television in Connecticut. Um, two days after the murder, they cannot locate Jeffrey. This is what the police are telling the public. We don't know where Jeffrey is. He is a person of interest in this case. The day of the murder... Barbara was scheduled to be at a court hearing with Jeffrey and his attorney and her attorney about an enormous amount of unpaid child support and spousal support. The child support totaled something like $350,000. The spousal support was about $100,000. And if Jeffrey didn't pay it that day, he was probably going to go to jail. He was going to be found in contempt of court and there were going to be serious consequences. So it was a pretty big moment in her life and for her to be killed literally while she was supposed to be in court mm-hmm. is really a red flag. Right. Um, uh, they, I think they eventually, so his mom around this time had started to tell her family that Jeff is having some kind of problem overseas. He's got multiple passports for some reason. We don't really know why. The family is, of course, sharing all of this with the police who are investigating the murder. Jeff is fine. I think they, they go to his condo in some nice neighborhood and they don't find him. And the neighbors say he's never around and the, the, the newspapers haven't been read. He finally emerges with a very well-known criminal defense attorney who has um, got quite a reputation. They provide a sample of Jeff's hair and DNA. And after that moment, the police say they don't have enough evidence to hold Jeff for the murder, even though the pile of circumstantial evidence is pretty damn high. So... But what happened to this DNA and what happened to this forensic evidence? The family says that they were told by the 
by the police that Connecticut was opening a new forensic lab that was going to be the toast of the forensic community and that they should wait for any real analysis of the DNA to happen until the lab opens. The lab opens to much fanfare. We see snippets of the press conference. They're then told that the DNA cuts were faulty and they're limited. And this is something where I want to ask you about this. I feel like there are several different versions of what happened to the DNA and what condition the DNA is in over the course of this special, like it changes over time. But in this episode, they basically tell the family, don't get your hopes up. We're not sure we're going to get much out of this DNA. And then the family cremates Barbara's body, which Barbara's mother later says they realized was a terrible mistake that in any, that while it was family tradition in any criminal proceeding, um, you must not, your, the body is evidence, whether you can accept that or not, and you must not destroy it as they did, which is, you know, what they did. There, there are also allegations made against the Madison Police Department around this time, which the family is more than willing to amplify as suggesting that maybe they mishandled the case. Multiple cops are fired for hiring sex workers. They establish a motorcycle gang, apparently, which is like, wow, a police department established its own motorcycle gang? Yeah, that's um, really, that's choice. So it's uh, going back to, I believe, 2013, when all the, inter- the first round of interviews are happening. Madison asked for an interview with the police department. They won't grant him one, but they have asked him to come in for an interview. So... And what will become a trend throughout this special, he secretly records the interview. And I mean, you know, wraps the mic on his body underneath his clothes. And um, and so we are, sh- the interview is shown to us, which says to me that there's later no legal issue around putting this we interview in a documentary. We hear it. Yeah, we hear it. We see exterior shots of the station and we see the interview. He's interviewed by a detective named Christopher Sudok and a detective named Neil Mahern. Um they say the reason they're not sitting on camera with him is because it's an open case. And they reveal that there was a cigarette at the scene that connects to him and not his dad. And that there was male Hamburg DNA under Barbara's fingernails, which means they cannot eliminate Jeffrey, Madison's father. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. But it might just as well have been Madison, the person doing the investigation, might also be a suspect in this murder, right? Yes, that's what the cigarette found at the scene of Barbara's murder suggests, is that they can't really eliminate either of them. They can't eliminate Madison or Jeffrey. But from that cliffhanger... But honestly, a cigarette butt could have been left there at any time, so that has nothing to do with the murder. And I think, in my opinion, that is just the first of many um, deflecting, manipulative things the cops try to say to get Madison to leave their station, essentially. I think this becomes a trend. Okay, so 2016, we jump ahead, right? Madison has graduated college. Nothing has happened with the case. He invites his dad to New York for drinks. And he films him, this was quite ballsy, he films him from across the street. So he basically establishes, I don't know if it's his apartment or his friend's apartment. Madison is working with two producers that are his age at this point. And they get a line of sight on this bar across the street from this apartment. And Madison somehow gets his dad to sit in the (laughs) friggin' window of this bar. I mean, the luck and timing of this totally um, got me. And he gets his dad steadily drunker. And 
at first he does his usual routine. I'm not, I can't talk about this, Madison. I can't talk about this. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not, you know, it's all, it's all, look at the facts. And then he says, look at the facts. And he starts Jeffrey for the first time to kind of make a, a case for himself. He says the police lied, that they did know where he was after the murder, even though they, they were claiming they didn't. He was talking to them and arranging to how he was going to respond and what he was going to give them. And he also says the cops aren't looking in the right places and they never were. And that's when we hear the words gifting tables, which, which I, I had never heard never. prior to them saying this. Never, never, never. And that leads us right into the second episode of the special, which is called Tables and Rooms. And we're introduced to Barbara's aunt, a woman named Jill Platt. And we're told up front that Jill went to jail for wire fraud and tax evasion and for being involved in something called gifting tables. And, not coincidentally, had Barbara lived, she probably would have too. Is that what you gathered out of this? Because we're told Barbara was heavily involved in the gifting tables. Absolutely. She would have gone to jail with her aunt for exactly the same crimes Jill had she lived. Jill and another woman, Donna Bello, who will be interviewed, both went to jail for this. I, I have to tell you, I'm not a math person, and every time I have a pyramid scheme explained to me, I stop being able to understand how it works. So maybe you can do a better job of this, but essentially a gifting table is a pyramid scheme, right? It absolutely is. And it's about people paying in on the bottom and it manifesting at the top. So you buy in for $2,000 and then you get two people to join and they each join for $2,000 and they get two people to join. And so that's now four people and they come in for $8,000. And then at a certain point, you're at the top of the pyramid and you cash out and start again. And those people are, so the cash is migrating upwards. Right. Okay. And so the idea was they pretended these were just dinner parties and you were supposed to, if you were a member, you were supposed to go out and recruit women to come to this party that you right. felt were good for the money and that knew other women who would also be good for the women. It was women only. Right. And it's all about it empowerment. Was, right. It was all about empowerment. It was all about sisterhood. And it was also happening in 2008 after the terrible crash of the economy, the Great Recession, as it's now called. So people were financially pinched financially pinched, uh, husbands were losing their jobs, wives were losing their jobs, families were in trouble, they needed cash, and of course nobody was telling the IRS about any of this money that was changing hands at the gifting table. Because it tables. was a crime. Yes. It's called wire fraud, apparently, and they were emailing about it and not reporting it to the IRS, and that really constitutes wire fraud, apparently. You were having digital communications about unreported financial transactions. Okay. So... Um, I still don't right. understand, and I, I don't want this to turn into a podcast about gifting tables, but I just this is what I need to explain to me. So when you move to the top and you cash out, where's that? The cash is coming from all the people under. Right. <laughs> that always makes me feel stupid. Everybody yeah. underneath you is paying upwards. And so let's say the goal is to get $36,000. So by the time you get enough people underneath you that they've all paid in $36,000, then you get it. And right. then when you leave, the two people that you brought in become the tops of two other pyramids. Right. And okay. when they've brought in enough people to get $36,000, then they get the money and they leave and the two people they brought in become the top of two other pyramids. So now that's two four others. pyramids. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Exactly. They spreading. show up. And eventually the people at the bottom of the pyramid lose their money because the yes. money has to come from somewhere. And when it stops, you know, if they don't get 36 people to come in and give $1,000, then then they're not going to get it. They're, and they're going to lose the $2,000 they put in to begin with. Right. And there, there is another thing that happened prior to this in the timeline of this story that I jumped over a little too fast. Um, Barbara's drinking in the wake of the divorce and her alienation from her husband became terrible. She went to rehab. It had a really positive effect on her and she joined Alcoholics Anonymous and she became what they describe as a pillar of the community. People from her meetings are interviewed and say that she was someone who gave back and she was someone that people looked up to. And she started involving people from Alcoholics Anonymous in the gifting tables. 
which was and during it's presented a financial crisis. During a financial crisis, so she was involving people who looked up to her in a twelve-step support group in a dubious financial scheme in which many were doomed to uh, lose their out money. Of their money. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, the groups are spreading like wildfire. They show a map of Connecticut with this graphic, and it's, it's basically they're like three leaders, Barbara, Jill, Barbara's aunt, and this other woman, Donna, have basically divvied up the state, it looks like, you know. and And she, Jill says that there is one night at one party where they have $90,000 worth of cash in one house, which during a financial crisis was a scary thing, in her opinion. Um... Around this time, I'm going to say, so four months before Barbara's murder in November of 2009, someone rats out the gifting tables to the attorney general. And I don't think they ever say who it is, right? It's just somebody loses their money. They're pissed. They They know they were taken advantage of. They report it. Um, We interview uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, who was the attorney general at the time. You may know him as being a staunch uh, anti-Trump person. Um, in Congress, someone who led the charge for impeachment. Um, he is interviewed. He explains why these are why these pyramid schemes are doomed to fail and people will always lose their money, blah, 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 blah. It's not an investment scheme. It's a, no. it's a, you know. Um, and around he explains this time, it directly to Madison, aware that his mother was one of the swindlers in this particular operation that he yeah. himself and his office prosecuted. He even says, I don't even know if he's aware that Barbara is the woman he's talking about, but he says one member of this group used AA, the rooms of AA to recruit people into this scheme. And Madison flinches and then later discloses to the senator, you know, that was my mother that you're talking about. Um, Around this time, Barbara tells people she thinks she's being watched. And at the time of her murder... She was in what's called the receiving position. She was at the dessert level, right? That's what the receiving position is. She was dessert, which means she was right. cashing out. Yeah. Um, so uh, around this time, someone also ripped down her mailbox and stole it. And a friend of hers from AA came over to repair it for her. And he testified. He doesn't testify to that, but he gives that in an interview to Madison. Then there's a big falling out between Jill, Barbara's aunt, and Barbara. Because Barbara has decided to invite Jill's messy sister, Tracy, to the gifting tables. And Jill not only can't stand Tracy, but he says she's a mess. Excuse me. She says she's a mess. She's not good for the money. She doesn't know other women who might have the money. She's not the type of candidate they try to recruit. Excuse me, invite, because they don't use the word recruit, because that would make it clear it's a criminal scheme. Um, Jill apparently cuts Barbara off and says, I don't want anything to do with her group. Um, they never make up and Jill goes to prison ultimately for the gifting table schemes. However, Madison asked Jill on camera interviewing her in her kitchen. Did you murder my mother? And she says, no, I didn't. I have an alibi. We were, my husband and I were going on a road trip that day. And by four in the morning, we were in the car so that we could beat traffic. Um, but she says that, um, Barbara was so paranoid. She was burying money in her yard. And that several days before the murder, she saw a guy in a ski mask walk through her yard, but she didn't call the police because probably she had money from a criminal enterprise buried in her yard. <laughs> and she was involved in the gifting tables. And there was an investigation with the Connecticut Attorney General. Um, okay, so this is, and typically the way these episodes work, they would tip. But let's go back. So sure, a absolutely. man wearing a ski mask. Mm-hmm walked past the window in Barbara's house while she was having mm-hmm. coffee with a friend coming from her backyard. I think that's right. really worth drawing a line under. Okay, Because that's yes. really unusual. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I had a ski mask guy here earlier. He just walked by and, you know, I was on the seventh floor, but I thought, oh, I don't right. know. He's if trying a ski to ski. man with a ski mask was on a scaffolding outside your window on the seventh floor, right. it would be really weird. Like, that detail gets presented to us a couple of times, and we just sort of roar right past it. And I'm like, wow, you think that could have been the murderer? <laughs> Yeah. It just seems like, well, there's the murderer. Right. 
Yeah. So um, less less appropriate than determining where your alibi was on the day she was murdered. How does everybody's alibi stock up on the day that the guy with the ski mask walked <laughs> past her window? Yes, exactly. To me, that seems like something you might want to look into. No one, including the filmmakers, ever does. I just thought I would yeah. bring that up. And I think what happens at the end of each episode is they begin shifting suspicion onto the next possible suspect. So the timeline of the of the documentary isn't necessarily a through line from beginning to end. And what begins to happen is that out of nowhere, what became clear to me is that at some point Madison sold his story to a reputable production company that started to give him an enormous amount of support because suddenly associate producers start to show up. He has these offices where he's doing his research. And I don't fault him for that, but it's like the, it goes from being a college kid with his camera to this is clearly some sort of HBO or HBO adjacent production, right, that's yeah. happening. And so this new associate producer comes in and says, and this part I need your help with because I got confused. They say, Conway, Barbara's sister who found the body, one of the two right. women who found the body, has documents from the grand jury testimony that she's not supposed to have. And this is grand jury testimony about the gifting table trial. And in these documents that Conway has handed over, a witness who is um, not identified, because all of this is supposed to be sealed, grand jury testimony is never supposed to be public, testified that rabbit heads were found on her property, that she thinks Barbara's murder was connected to the gifting tables, and she believes that Conway was intimidating people, and she thinks that Conway was involved in her sister's murder. So what the documentary has just told us is that Conway who at this point we haven't spent much time with, has grand jury testimony she's not supposed to have, and she has handed it over to a documentary crew even though it implicates her. I was like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 what's happening here? And that wasn't really addressed unless I missed something. Well, I think that's a, being addressed in a larger kind of way, which I'm happy to talk about. It's more, like, conclusive. I don't want to be spoilery about it, but... If you have absolutely no idea who did it and you're, you've already committed to making a documentary and maybe even mm -hmm. to delivering it to HBO, you start coming up with a way to try and present it mm -hmm. as a finished yeah. product or something that might be interesting without a conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that she was trying to be helpful and they used it as a way to generate a possibility mm -hmm. against her in order to move a, a narrative forward that would make a saleable documentary that has no actual conclusion. Right. And so we're spoiler going to alert. Air, spoiler alert. There is no conclusion to this. Uh, there is a conclusion and the conclusion is that the actual documentary should have begun at the conclusion and isn't finished yet, but that's my opinion. Yes. The next episode is called sisters and in it, Con the two women who discovered Barbara's body each try to throw suspicion on the other, even though they live in different countries and haven't spoken to each other in years. And those women are Conway Beach, Barbara's sister, and Allie, her daughter, who was Madison's younger sister. And Madison is clearly interviewing both of these people separately and is not telling the other what the other is saying about them. But Conway... Um, was a she was the mess of the family. Alcoholism runs in this family, but Conway was particularly bad. So bad that at one point she was living with a pimp. She was basically homeless. Um, she, by her own testimony, says that she was planning to hire a hitman to take revenge against the family because they had basically banished her. Jeffrey, Madison's father, becomes far more forthcoming, however, in interviews he believes are secret or conversations he believes are secret and begins talking about the addiction in Barbara's family because that's where he wants his son to be focusing. And he says that they went to try to find Conway when he and Barbara were still married and to help her. And she was so bad off that they get, threw up their hands and left. And when they contacted the rest of the family about Conway, the family said, let her die. So that said, Conway managed to get sober and managed to clean up her act and rejoin the family. And um, she then suffered a series of health crises. She had a brain tumor. She, there was something else that I'm forgetting, but it was they were both pretty serious and pretty bad. Right. And she ended up living with Barbara. 
also living with Barbara was Allie, her younger daughter. And so then Conway begins to describe what a nightmare Allie was. And Allie was abusing substances. And Allie was verbally abusing her mother and always screaming at her in the kitchen. And what it sounds like is that in this home environment, Conway and Allie became siblings, almost like sisters, as opposed to, you know, an elder and a teenager, which is what they actually were. Right. And the case that Conway makes against Allie is that there's no proof in her mind that Allie was actually at school that morning. Allie, by her own admission, says she called home to say she didn't want to stay at school, which is something that happened. Allie just didn't stay at school when she didn't feel like it, which was like, well, that's a choice. That was not an option I was given (laughs) as a teenager. Right. Um, But Conway claims that when they find the body, Allie tries to perform CPR on it with such aggression that Conway interpreted that as the young woman trying to put as much forensic material, to exchange as much forensic material with Barbara's corpse as she possibly could to conceal the fact that she was involved in the murder. So that, like the whole kind of third episode is stacking those two women up against each other. Because the thing that I think is worth noting is that when Allie couldn't get her mother on the phone, she called Conway, who came to the school and picked her up and brought her back, which is how they discovered the body. So mm-hmm. Conway, I think, was trying to make the case that she was setting her up to discover the body as well as to kind of be her witness that she wasn't the one who did it. But, you know, she was at school. So how did she get there? And her claim was and- her mother took her. And Madison goes back and talks to people from the school and they search old digital records and they verify that Allie actually was at school the entire time, that she showed up when she said she would. And Madison presents this to Conway as basically a fatal blow against her theory. And the the other thing that they prove is that the nurse remembers talking to Allie's Mm -hmm. mother, to Barbara. Barbara was at the school as well. So that means that Allie didn't kill her and then come to school and then go home to discover the body, which is Conway's uh, assertion. Uh, The mother was actually seen after the time Allie was in school. So it wouldn't have been possible for her to kill her. So, and then we get it. We get what is probably our our first detailed analysis of the crime scene, and it has some very revealing things about it. There was clearly a violent confrontation, physical confrontation between Barbara and her killer, which began on the front porch of the house. It knocked over a statue. There's a huge pile of blood, or not pile of blood, excuse me, puddle of blood in the front lawn of the house, which they believe is where the actual murder took place. But this location is within sight of a nearby golf course. And that's why they think whoever it was dragged the body to the side of the house out of view, covered it up with these lawn cushions because they felt remorse and then took off running. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And 
while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Okay, so we are at the final episode of the series, Murder on Middle Beach, and it's called Reasonable Doubts. And the previous episode and the key has word ended is final because it was like, yeah. well, finally, by this point, long stretches of this show are devoted to Madison being cute and on camera. And yeah ruminating about stuff and lamenting stuff and talking about stuff and taking off his shirt to put on a secret microphone and whatever else they can do to fill time so they can have four episodes because so far there has not been three episodes of story presented. Mm-hmm. And the previous episode ended with the, with the revelation that Conway's alibi for the murder was shaky because she was cleaning out Jill's mother's basement and Jill was a very, very elderly woman and she has since passed away. So, okay, so it's like everyone's a suspect, whatever. Right. So we open the final episode. Madison is really making an aggressive end run at his father. He's trying to get his father to agree to an interview. And so um, around this time... And this is one of those things where it's like, this happened at the beginning and you just saved it to the end to create drama in the final episode. Conway brings in a huge document dump from Barbara and Jeff's divorce proceedings. And they show all these documents on screen. And what they reveal is that Jeff was involved in some shady ass shit overseas. There are shell companies upon shell companies, billions of dollars. It looks like or, money laundering. Yeah, it looks like money it's in laundering. Russia and Cyprus. And where was the other place? Switzerland. Grand Cayman, yeah. somewhere. Places yeah. where money laundering happens. Panama, probably. And they, he brings them to a sort of professor of forensic crime or forensic accounting, and, and they have a meeting with her on speakerphone, and she basically says, this is financial crime. What you're looking at is, is massive movements of money through countries in which business wasn't actually being done, the business involved. These are there's something called a prime bank guarantee, which I couldn't even really figure out what it was, but it was just all smoke and bullshit. And what she says that I that while I didn't understand either, she said there is no business explanation for this. The only right. explanation for this is crime, is money laundering, and right. that was that. That's really the takeaway. Uh, and so he basically goes through all these documents. He gets that analysis and he he goes to I think what does he spend the day with his father he says let's meet and go around New York together and his father does the same shit and basically his father becomes more aggressive about your mother was a crazy drunk crazy drunks make up bullshit everyone in that family is a drug addict he's really he's like drilling down on this point and when Madison asks him about all these documents the answers just become word salad. Like the stuff Jeff is saying doesn't even make any sense. It's contradictory. It's all stonewalling on balance, but it's like, what is it? It's made up. It's crazy. I've never heard of this before. Where is your proof? And Madison actually knows where his proof is. It's on his desk at the office because he has the documents. And Jeff, meanwhile, is claiming that Barbara got drunk, called the police, and suggested he was laundering money, which is which triggered this whole thing. And they brought Barbara. That's because Barbara has always told people, I was questioned about Jeff, whatever Jeff was doing overseas. And Jeff is saying that was her fault because she got paranoid and drunk and made this up. And that may be true. Yeah. But she also said that Jeff told her that he was in danger, and that's why he was trying to stay away from the family, because uh, he didn't want to endanger them as well, which... Might also be true because he wasn't right. home. Abandonment was the reason that she was granted the divorce in the first place, and they didn't grant the divorce because he was because he was a stay-at-home dad. Right. So now it's, he's not getting anywhere with his dad. So Madison tries to go back to the police, and he brings with him a trio of private detectives, which I think it's pretty clear those the do- producers have hired now that he's right. Madison's getting more resources. And they they say, "Will you share information with us? Will you work with us?" And they basically they say no, but they do reveal that they have zero unidentified DNA. So I guess in the time since that lab bungled those early kits, they have managed to narrow down 
Because what the detective team or the private detective team offers is we can do some of this testing for you. If you share this evidence with us, we can go out, we can get it, whatever. And they say, we don't need that because we have all the information from this DNA that we need. We have gender. We have all this sort of stuff. But what they reveal, which is definitely a reveal, is that they have a number one suspect and the number one suspect's phone was turned off for a 24-hour period which is like who turns their phone off for 24 hours if they don't have a really good and compelling reason to. Um, that's when Madison goes to his dad. He's once again secretly recording him. He confronts him about the documents. He gets word salad. Jeff is saying that the letters are all fraudulent, even though he simultaneously admits to having done some scheme for trying to trade oil that didn't work. It just becomes a mess. Um, then we get to, I think, what is the biggest reveal of all? And again, it was like, were you just saving this? for last, or I don't know what. The day of Barbara's murder, someone had given her the wrong time for her court date, right? 9.30 in the morning, Jeff, the number one suspect, and his lawyer are sitting in the local courthouse waiting for Barbara to show up. Meanwhile, Barbara is getting murdered. But it turns out, based on testimony or the accounts of multiple people in Barbara's life, Barbara thought the court date was at 2 p.m., and she was in her pajamas at the time of the murder for that reason, because she was home just sort of hanging out, thinking that she was going to go down there and deal with this later in the afternoon. Um, so the police also reveal that they have Barbara's phone. So if someone called telling her that the court date had been moved, there's probably a record of that call. So basically what you're starting to realize is that how this four-episode series is going to end is not with any big revelation, but with Madison and his crew, now assisted by several members of the Yale Law School, filing a Freedom of Information Act with the state of Connecticut to try to get access to the police files on the case. And they show the hearing, and in the course of this hearing... The police discovered that they were secretly recorded all these years. Every time Madison went in to talk with them, he was recording them. Um, they claim what they apparently, what the FOIA, what, how do you say it? FOIA? Freedom of FOIA, Information. Freedom of yeah. Information Act request. They yeah. claim what they've always claimed, which is we can't release this information because it's an open case. And so what you, what you have to counter with if you're going to bring a claim like this is the case is dead. Nothing's happening. None of this information is hot. You have no reason not to hand it over. And because Madison has them on tape at various times over the years saying, this case is dead, it's not moving forward, we don't have what we need, we can't. <laughs> I think that becomes a large part, regardless of whether or not those recordings were legal or not, and I don't know if they were in the And they were not admitted in evidence at the yeah. hearing because for that very reason. Yes. The police actually claimed at the hearing, which I thought was laugh out loud funny, that they'd had an interview about the case just that week. Yeah, totally. And you're like, this and one? refused like, to say with who because that would, of course, disclose confidential information about the investigation that, that has not gone anywhere for more than 10 years. And so the end of this documentary is that Madison's request is granted and approximately 2,000 documents are released to him and his team is reviewing it, and we learn this through title cards as Madison walks to the Madison police station, and that is the fucking end of this show. <laughs> Which is the most frustrating thing I've ever seen in my life. So when yeah. he finally gets the information that we've been waiting for, for four episodes, it's over. It's over, yeah. I just... And they don't tell us what any of the information is, so I yeah. guess... I smell sequel. I'm not, I'm not interested. Yeah. And so, you know, like, okay, so we, th th that was a lot of notes. Thank you for letting me read all of those or take sure. us through those. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, did you see something underneath the surface here? Did you see a likely suspect? Who do you think did it? I think because that's what a documentary structured like this does. If we've if we've not told you anything decisive by the end of it, but we've given you four or five likely suspects, we're asking you to pick one in the audience. So who would you pick if you had to pick? Right. But that's the thing that I don't like about this is that those are the suspects that they're presenting me with. Mm -hmm. Right? Like... They didn't like, okay, so who was the guy in the ski mask? Right. Yeah. Can I pick him? Right. 
Like, was any investigation done either by the police or by the filmmakers into who that was? No. So that's a suspect. Or mm-hmm. who were the people from her AA meetings that she swindled out of money and who knew her mm-hmm. and knew where she lived? Are they possible suspects? Yes. Were they investigated or was anything shown to me about them? No. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's that sort of, it's like, don't present me with five people and tell me it has to be one of those five people. I don't think it's any of those people. I think her, I think his father might be involved if he hired somebody to do the murder. Mm-hmm. Right? That could have been the guy in the ski mask because... But the reason I suspect him is that he's such a cagey asshole about mm-hmm. giving his own son information about the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, the police apparently have had the same suspect, as they told Madison, since three days after the murder, I guess based on the DNA evidence. So mm-hmm. they've never wavered. They think they know who it is, but they can't make a case against that person. And mm-hmm. Madison was the only person that he, Madison knows of whose phone was off for 24 hours. But that doesn't mean he's the only person that whose phone was off for that 24 hours because it might have been mm-hmm. anybody. Like, mm-hmm. because we didn't investigate them. This is this is classic case of bad investigation, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, it's got to be one of these five suspects. Why does it have to be one of these five suspects? There's a whole world of suspects. Like, this has all the earmarks of being a follow-home murder. She dropped the daughter mm-hmm. off at school. She didn't even make it back into her house. She was getting out of her car, and whoever it was bludgeoned her. But her pocketbook was left at the scene, so that seems unlikely, Mm-hmm. Right, that it was you know follow home robbery, and a but it might have been a follow used. home angry person who right. pushed her or hit her and didn't mean to kill her, and then uh, hid the body. This, the eighteen stab wounds, however, seems like it was somebody really angry, threatening her with a knife. Personal, personal yes. too, personal, very and are the covering up of angry. the body suggests remorse. Like I think the where it falls apart is as you got into those documents, right, and all those shell companies, you start to think, oh, this is some sort of assassination tied to Jeffrey's work. But no, nothing about the murder. The murder would have been more efficient. Barbara would have just been gone if she was about to squeal yeah. something about. You know, she would have just vanished. You know, so there's that. Um, the other thing you were making me think of is how the case through the gifting tables and the AA thing. How you're right, it touches so many potential suspects other than these five because that's such an exposure in both those and areas. And none of those people are even sort of addressed by this investigation. And the police may or may not have done a shitty job, but it appears that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know because the only information I have is coming to me through this tiny pinhole investigation by this albeit attractive, but completely incompetent young man. He's not even a good filmmaker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, nothing about him seems credible or in any way convincing. So I wasn't actually presented with anything that made me think any of those people were necessarily it, including the father, who could not have been more suspicious if he was trying or if this was mm-hmm. scripted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nothing was presented that seemed like evidence. Her father mm-hmm. was actually sitting in court with his mother's lawyer. That's his alibi. But, and this is what we talked about this, I think, on the last episode, too. And I think this is something that really sets us off, and rightfully so. Asking people to convict based on their gut level responses to people's personalities. You know, okay, yeah, this person is an asshole, but unless you have the forensic evidence that convicts them of this crime, that's not how we work in this country. We don't just put and people in prison for being assholes. The evidence that will you convict know? him will be they catch the actual murder and get him to give him pay evidence or some other right. connection with the person who hired him to do the crime because it would have to have been somebody he hired because he has the best alibi of anybody else in the case. Mm -hmm. He also has one of the best motives, but I don't think it's the best because if she was swindling people who trusted her out of their money, I could see how that might result in, you know, great anger and really bad decision making. I really, the minute I heard she was bringing in people from her AA meetings to be part of these gifting tables, I was like, that's who did it. Somebody whose life was on the ropes, who felt like they got taken advantage of, who was dealing with emotional instability in in a transitional period of their life. 
got fucking pissed and and because it's it's also a sloppy personal emotional murder you know all of that goes with somebody who's really distressed right and who has not thought this out it's the wrong time of day to murder somebody well like 10 in the morning in a yeah. suburban community like where all the all the homebound the ha- spouses yard. are at home in the front yard yeah totally yeah yeah. Not a very okay. professional job. And that could be the person in the ski mask. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember how many days elapsed between the person in the ski But Here we are. It's like we're talking about. This is what they want us to do because it's all but speculation. It's, so we're but swimming But it's true. It. I mean, that actually was pretty close to the time of the murder. So, right. mm-hmm. yes, I do remember that. And that does seem suspicious to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, how would you have told the story? If you looking um, at all you were presented when the with. FOIA request was granted, I would have stopped everything, followed up everything in the in the police investigation, and then I would have recast everything I had based on that. Mm-hmm. If right. I'd had to reshoot, I would have, but I would have used what footage I could from the investigation to originate from the granting of the FOIA request and then go mm-hmm. and then lay it back out. I wouldn't necessarily have begun with the granting of the FOIA request, but I would have followed all the leads in the FOIA request as I was pursuing the investigation that led to the FOIA request. Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, that was... Because was literally, there was no information provided by this. This was a bunch of people, like, you could have done the entire um, special over dinner with the people involved, just saying all the things that they said at the dinner party. Because yeah. that's all it, it was, was people just saying, well, I think, and so-and-so said, and I was suspicious of, and this was really, but... None of it was any evidence of anything. And this is not um, what appeals to me about true crime. We were having, you and I were having this conversation recently with some of my cousins about that, you know, people will often dismiss true crime junkies as being just sort of obsessed with the dark or obsessed with the, um, the adrenaline rush of violence. And really, it is about an obsession with solving things. With it closure. is a fantasy with closure. And it is about. And the, the, the stories that I like are about exalting people who really went the distance in the full mile and put in the effort to solve a complicated case, to, t- to, to get some real justice, right? And there are too often these stories that think just swimming in ambiguity, if there's no really urgent social issue underneath, I think some things are, some ambiguous things must be confronted and discussed and dealt with, you know, but just swimming in suspicions is not a compelling true crime story for me. And like I want people who may be innocent on a television show I, is just I, hideous. I can't get past the secret recordings. Even as much of an asshole as his father was, this man secretly recorded people without their knowledge for years and it's not like he was tar- you know what I say it's like if you're being abused right and you can't get out of your situation and your only recourse is to secretly record your abuser threatening you trying to keep you from leaving I- okay you know I'll okay. open up my whatever to that right. if you're actually trying to save your life but if you just have some fucking suspicions and you're going to strap a tape recorder on you and you're not an officer of the law and you're not even really working with law you know like I really had a problem with that I really had a problem with that because I thought here you have someone who is a likely suspect and by doing this you are potentially pissing in the evidence pool you know what I mean like you you could potentially fuck up because a lot of like I think the laws are different state by state, but in California, I don't. I think what he did is against the law. You can't tape record somebody well, without their knowledge. Well, it would be inadmissible at the very least. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but he was cute, and I, yeah, I do. I hope they find out who killed his mother. Four hours of our time telling us yeah. absolutely nothing about the murder of his mother. Like yeah. that's the thing that ticked me off was that no actual information was provided, and when he finally got information at the very mm-hmm. end of the story, he stopped filming, which really yeah. pissed me off because I wanted yeah. to know what the police had investigated. Yeah. That might have been I, actual information. I wanted her killer to be found. I don't want Barbara's killer to go free. Nobody Who does. Who did the police right? suspect since the beginning? Yeah, and that would have been Absolutely. in the files, and they wouldn't tell us. Okay, so that, I'm sorry, that's all the time we have. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, do we? No, I'm not going to say what I was going to say next. I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say it, so I'm not saying it. So we're moving on. I was going to say, okay, I'm fine. I'll say this. Are we placing a bet about whether or not we're going to be back in our studio for the next episode, or is that too <laughs> dicey a proposition? I am really, really hoping. If placing a bet would make it more likely to be so, I would be willing to do it. This was great, and I'm glad we figured out how to do this, but I would love to have seen you and Brandon in person. I don't get to go a lot of places these days because the world keeps being in COVID lockdown all the time, and it would be nice to be at the office and have sent out for lunch and gossip during the lunch break and all the things we usually get to do that we didn't get to do so Here's hoping. I love our studio, and I would love to be back mm-hmm. in it. And so, here's hoping that next time. How's that? Here's we'll hoping, and I want to say before the Gremlins, before the Gremlins, we were able to do our first ever audiobook recording in the studio, and we recorded part of my forthcoming gay romance novel, Sapphire Sunset, in the studio, which I am narrating, and it was very fun. Sassy. Sassy Sunset is the sequel. I this was Sapphire Sunset. Yes. Sassy Sapphire. Anyway, so um, until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.